nonprofit leaders have one huge advantage over business leaders in that purpose is at the core of what we do. It's easy to say the nonprofit sector is broken. Less easy is saying how we're going to fix it. Welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors, where we speak with brilliant people to reimagine the future of social impact. In this fourth season, we'll be switching things up a bit and diving into what we all want, including and beyond donors. I'm Rachel stephenson Chef, IG's Managing Director, and we're a strategy consultancy specializing in social and environmental change. This podcast is part of our mission to fix the flow of resources for good. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel, the host of the show, and today's interview is with Nick Grono, CEO of the Freedom Fund. The Freedom Fund, if you don't know, is a global fund with the sole aim of ending modern slavery. Since 2014, they funded over 170 frontline organizations in geographies and industries with the highest prevalence of slavery, and they've invested over $100 million around the world. Now a little bit more about Nick. Nick, in addition to his role as CEO, he serves on the advisory councils of Global Witness and the McCain Institute. He was previously the chair of the Joe Cox Foundation and a board member of Girls Not Brides, the global partnership to end child marriage. Prior to the Freedom Fund, Nick was the inaugural CEO of the Walk Free Foundation and the deputy president and chief operating officer of the International Crisis Group. He's a lawyer by background, and prior to this, he was chief of staff and national security advisor to the Australian Attorney General. He has a law degree with first-class honors from the University of Sydney and a master's in public policy from Princeton University. At IG, we've had the pleasure of working directly with Nick, Aaron Phelps, and the wider Freedom Fund team over the last year to create an incredible new resource for donors, which has just launched. It's called Funding Frontline Impact, and you can access it completely for free at fundingfrontlineimpact.org. The resource is all about how to fund frontline or grassroots organizations more effectively, and it's filled with both strategic and tactical guidance for donors of all kinds. This is really what Nick and I speak about in the episode, in, in the conversation, how to fund frontline organizations more effectively and finally get out of our own way as donors so that we can actually enable the change that we all want to see. I'm really excited for people to start engaging with the resource and the site. It's been an incredible process to put together. So that is now live and ready. Please do visit the website and let us know what you think. As always, before we dive in, I just want to send a thank you and shout out to our official season four sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership really makes all of this possible. And I also want to send a thank you to our fantastic media partner, Alliance Magazine. You can check out their website, alliancemagazine.org, and you can get 50% off of a subscription by using the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, at checkout. And finally, before we dive in, I do want to give a content warning in that Nick directly speaks about sexual slavery, child soldiers, and violent conflict in relation to the Freedom Fund's work in modern slavery. So if that doesn't feel good for you, please do skip this one. All right, here we go. On to the conversation with Nick Grono. All right. Welcome, Nick Grono, to What Donors Want. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here. So we are here to talk about 
your work at the Freedom Fund, but specifically the resource that we've been so thrilled to create with you over the last year called FundingFrontlineImpact.org, which is now live. And I know that's been a real passion project of yours and kind of something that you've really championed at the fund and really drove forward. So I'm wondering, before we dive into the details of what that is and, and the philosophies and everything, can you just set the scene for us? Why did you want to create a resource like this? Sure. So at the Freedom Fund, we work on modern slavery and modern slavery disproportionately affects vulnerable, marginalized communities. It's just a huge power differential. If people are enslaved, it's because someone has the power to force them to work or to sexually abuse them. Right? So addressing those power differentials means looking at ways you shift power, often around collective action. And the most effective form of collective action is supporting frontline grassroots groups that are part of the community or close to the communities. Mm-hmm. We see that as a tremendously important way of driving systemic change to these massive and historic power differentials. But that means finding ways, finding partners to work with, supporting those partners, often working in remote areas of the world and get a lot of access to support or to funding. So even when you identify partners, it can be quite challenging. So part of my kind of motivation has been how can we encourage others to do Mm -hmm. this, right? We will scale impact by not only the Freedom Fund supporting organisations. We currently support 150 grassroots organisations around the world, but encouraging others to do the same. Mm -hmm. And beyond modern slavery, right? And beyond modern Mm -hmm. slavery. I mean, I kind of use the language around vulnerable, Mm -hmm. marginalised populations. They can be enslaved, but they can be exploited in all sorts of ways, right? Mm -hmm. And you find in the populations we work, girls aren't going to school. You know, they often suffer disproportionately from the impacts of climate, climate change, There's a whole host of bads that gets wrapped up in communities that are so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And just a quick question on language. It's called funding frontline impact, and you've also used the word grassroots. Can you just quickly define what a frontline organization is to you and why you use that language? Yeah, I mean, it's no hard and fast definition. It's a kind of shorthand we use Mm -hmm. for groups that are from the communities or very close to the communities that we're supporting. Frontlines implies you are right at the very front of the the issue, but we can talk about grassroots, we can talk about local, as long as we're using local appropriately, right, in the context. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people talk about proximate groups, proximate leadership. So it's an umbrella term that many different kinds of donors and people reading the site can find their way into. Exactly. Cool. So you've been CEO of the Freedom Fund since 2014, and I imagine that's almost 10 years ago now that your frontline funding journey has probably changed quite a lot. That's an assumption. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but what you were doing almost 10 years ago versus what you're doing now and the own ways that you've had to change your perspective or your mindsets or your practices at Freedom Fund. I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit about that journey for yourself and what the biggest learning curves have been, anything that surprised you, what has happened over the past 10 years for you that you think others should know about? I mean, my journey with frontline organizations started actually quite a lot before mm-hmm. my time at the Freedom Fund. I, For almost a decade before joining the Freedom Fund, I worked for a conflict prevention organization called International Crisis Group. And working on conflict, you know, often there is a tendency, particularly for big international organizations, just to focus on the power holders, the, mm-hmm. the warring parties, you know, and we often lean into peace deals and so on that share out power between those who were fighting and ignore the communities. I went about, when I was about 17 years ago, I went to northern Uganda, which was still at the tail end of the conflict with the Lord's Resistance Army. And and it was where I first came across, you know, very direct experience of the impact of slavery. 
because the Lord's Resistance Army used to raid villages at night, kidnap the children, force them often to kill their parents, to alienate them from their communities, and then turn the girls, and they were girls, into porters and sex slaves, and the boys, pumped full of drugs, into child soldiers. Mm -hmm. And I was visiting a number of frontline organisations there that were trying this desperately difficult job of bringing these ex-kids combatants into their communities Mm -hmm. and it's so difficult right there's so much hatred and anger and but of course peace won't be sustainable unless you can find ways of bringing the populace together in support of outcomes that don't involve violence so it was a stark reminder or it was a an awakening for me of the power of frontline communities to build sustainable peace Mm -hmm. and it's very very similar in the space that we're operating and about building sustainable power frontline organizations are key to any long-term resolution of the issues that we're trying to address so so that was the thesis from the beginning Mm -hmm. of course what you learn you can often come in particularly as a middle-aged white western male with an organization that's raising lots of funds from the global north and there can often be a tendency to take a quite a transactional approach to partners and this happens across the space but can particularly happen with small grassroots community organizations Mm -hmm. and it's easy to do you can hand out money and give lots of directions about what needs to be done but the real power and this was my learning over the last decade or so the real power is working with frontline groups as partners drawing on all of their knowledge and wisdom of the issue which is far far greater than ours co-creating programs Mm -hmm. and supporting them to flourish once they have access to the resources that they're after and once they're supported with long-term multi-year funding and so on you just see a transformational change in most cases Mm -hmm. that's a very long answer to your very short question Mm -hmm. of what's the journey been that's so interesting and I think what the site really brings to life and what I want to get to now is what that can look like in practice for so many different kinds of funders within and beyond the modern slavery space, including and beyond Freedom Fund. So can we get into those details? Can you sort of paint the picture of that? Can you walk listeners through what the site is, what they can find on it, who it's for, what is it all about? So, yeah, as you can hear, I'm a champion for supporting frontline groups Mm -hmm. and I'm also a champion for having the greatest possible impact. And so the thinking from the very beginning has been, well, look, over the last 10 years, we've developed really strong practices and procedures around supporting frontline groups, bearing in mind all of that learning that I'm talking about, how to do it and how to share power and all the rest of it. But you know, it's a lot of work that goes into understanding how you identify partners, how you do due diligence that is not too intrusive, how you have a discussion around performance and outcomes, all of that. And so my thinking around scale has been, if we think frontline organizations are a really powerful way of driving change, how can we support others to support frontline organizations? Mm -hmm. And figure the best way to do that is just to make all of our materials and learnings freely available. Mm -hmm. You know, I would love to see other funders who often shy away from funding frontline organizations because they are worried about identifying suitable partners, they're worried about issues of potential misappropriation of funding, they don't know how to do a lot of the processes, so they shy away from what is a really powerful way of supporting change. Mm -hmm. And we want to remove some of that friction, some of the burden there. So that's the thinking behind the site, is make all of that available, let other people learn from our mistakes and our learnings and all the rest of it, and put that all together in a very accessible way. Mm -hmm. And who can use the site? Who is it for? Well, anyone can use the site. If I had a target audience in mind, it's philanthropists working internationally, working on supporting groups that are vulnerable and marginalised in any form 
any form that that takes, who really like the idea or understand the power of supporting frontline organisations but are worried it might be too hard or worried mm-hmm. they don't have the knowledge and the learning. So we're sharing all of our templates, we're sharing kind of step-by-step guides, we're sharing all of those materials, not on the basis that this is the only way you can do it, Mm -hmm. right? We're not pretending that we're the experts on this, but we are certainly expert at it Mm -hmm. and figure people can learn a lot from that. So we're setting up a site that's framed around four big questions that I think people who would lean into the space will be asking. You know, one is how do I find and fund frontline organisations? Second question is how do I evaluate the impact of my support? as everyone wants to understand what impact mm-hmm. it's having. Yep. Third is, how do I support organisations to be sustainable and resilient? And again, because funders often go in thinking, well, what happens when my funding stops? Mm-hmm. So that's addressing that question. And then finally, and very importantly, how do I navigate risks and challenges? I mean, let's not pretend there aren't risks mm-hmm. in all of this, but the way to deal with that is to identify them up front and take appropriate measures to mitigate the risks as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Speaking of risk, I think something that I find very unique and quite unprecedented actually about this site is how transparent you are and how specific you are in the level of detail that you share as you said all the tools and templates from due diligence through to safeguarding and your organizational assessment tools it's all on there from the very beginning stages of grant making strategy vision identification through to application you know all of the things and through to even exiting the grants and it's a a level of transparency in a publicly facing way like literally on a website that you can just visit that I haven't quite seen yet from a funder a why why that level of transparency and b how do you as ceo of the freedom fund relate to the risk maybe that's the wrong word or the vulnerability that that might bring your organization in the sense of anyone who raises their head above the parapet and says this is what we do then and can invite commentary around that how do you relate to all that Let me start by just saying I'm delighted that you think that it's super transparent and you haven't seen Mm -hmm. it because certainly that's the aim. Mm -hmm. I've always leaned into transparency. I I think it's a superpower, right? Mm -hmm. I think we have the greatest impact as organisations if we really believe in the way that we work and the things that we're doing. We have the greatest impact by persuading others to kind of follow our course or join with us. Mm -hmm. And I think organisations can only scale their own work so far. So real scale means persuading others to kind of align with your thinking and philosophy. So that's at the heart of this, right? The best way to do that is just to say, well, here's what we do and share it all. I also think organisations and CEOs can be way too worried about the risks of sharing. You know, I strongly believe that kind of generosity is generative in in this space. Mm -hmm. I don't see that there's anything to be competitive about about our processes, right? If someone else wants to fund frontline organisations, I just think it's a huge asset for them to have access to materials Mm -hmm. that may help them do it better rather than them having to work out their own path. And I don't feel at all competitive because to my mind, the more people that fund frontline organisations effectively, Mm -hmm. the better. I just want to encourage that kind of behavior. I think, you know, it's a very strong philosophy at the Freedom Fund of partnering, collaborating with others. So this is a tangible demonstration of that, Mm -hmm. I hope. I agree. I really do. As someone slightly more on the outside of this, I do think it is there's a lot of integrity in this resource and that. And there's so many fund. I mean, it's very common practice to say we want to collaborate with other funders. We want to centralize. We want to not duplicate effort. 
But in order to do that well, there needs to be some level of transparency, some level of infrastructure to facilitate that. And that's often where things can fall off. And I, I think this resource is just such a great step forward in trying to challenge that. And something else I also think about is so many of the donor support resources out there, conversations, you know, you go to a conference and you listen to a panel. And a lot of the advice stays at the theoretical level. It's, okay, well, fun, unrestricted, multi-year, trust your partner, shift power. And yes, I agree with all of those principles, as I know you do as well. And that doesn't get into the specifics and the nuance of what that can look like in practice. And then so many donors can feel ill-equipped to take that forward in their own context. And that's what I think the power of this resource is. It has theoretical guidance and principles, but it has very, very, very specific guidance on your actual processes and how those have evolved. And I just think that's so cool. Yeah. And I, again, I'm delighted you think so. I mean, when we're trying to help people do something that they're not comfortable with or they're unsure about, the best way to help them on a journey is to tell stories, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not mm -hmm. fully telling stories here, but we kind of are because we're taking people through the journey of what we've done and what we've learned and being very specific. And so the idea behind the site is more of a kind of storytelling type approach because yeah. I think that's the way. And I think if you're really serious about funding a frontline organization, the general principles are great, but you're going to have very specific questions. Mm -hmm. You're going to have questions about risk. You're going to have questions about just how do you identify those partners? What does trust-based philanthropy look like, you know, in this context? And mm -hmm. maybe I can drill into that a little bit too, because mm -hmm. I think it's a really important Please thing, do. right? Everyone, and certainly everyone who receives funding wants trust-based unrestricted grants, right? And that's the ideal. But the concept of trust, I think, operates across a wide spectrum mm -hmm. and certainly in our practices you know some of the organizations we give many of the organizations we give restricted funding and many of the organizations that are even smaller we give unrestricted funding but we lean into a philosophy of trust because i think there are many other ways that trust manifests itself so mm -hmm. you work with your partners to work out how do we make it easier for them to apply for funding? You work with your partners to understand what reporting requirements would be burdensome and what wouldn't be and explain why you're doing them, right? Mm -hmm. We do need some reporting because it enables us to raise more funding to support partners. Mm -hmm. If we can't demonstrate our impact and we don't have some understanding of the impact that our funding is supporting, we can't make the case. So the other issues that we kind of lean into around identifying with the partners what their specific needs are so that the support actually supports that, not us coming from the outside with a very clear idea of what their needs are and how mm -hmm. they'll have impact. So I like to think of trust operating as a spectrum or mm -hmm. a, a whole range of issues and the obligation of organisations like ours that operate as a NGO and as a donor mm -hmm. to kind of push to the end of the spectrum on the trust base on as many aspects as possible. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that is a really important nuance because exactly as you say, what trust-based philanthropy looks like in practice is different depending on what kind of donor you are, what kind of setup you have. As you say, you're a pooled fund for donors. You're doing your own fundraising at Freedom Fund. So there is a level of managing that accountability. And I just, again, I love how specific it is. There's one of my favorite quotes that has nothing to do with philanthropy, but it really reminds me of this resource. So I'm just going to read it. Is It's by an author named Jacqueline Woodson. And she says, the more specific we are, the more universal something can become. Life is in the details if you generalize it doesn't resonate. And I think that is it. And even if you are not an intermediary fund and you're using this website or this resource, you can still gain a lot by looking at the ways that you balance that trust on both sides of the equation, 
and what that means for the local program advisors, how they actually work with partners, how they scope beyond their echo chambers, all those kinds of things. I just think maybe there's also a reticence to get too specific for funders because people are worried that it won't be applicable or it's wasting people's time with details, but I really don't believe that's the case. And, I mean, that's a great quote and it could be the kind of the philosophy underlying Mm -hmm. the initiative because we just put out lots of materials and examples knowing that some people will be looking for some of this material and Mm -hmm. some will be looking for other aspects and we're not being prescriptive about how you approach it. It's just, you know, here are some learnings, here are some specific examples, take your pick. Yeah, it's a nice balance of lowest common denominator and specifics and I think it's a really powerful combo. This podcast is made possible by Seagull Family Foundation. We are building an extensive network of extraordinary people, positively transforming lives and communities across Africa. Whether you are a dreamer, funder, leader, or visionary, our network can help you make the greatest impact. To learn more, visit www.seagullfamilyfoundation.org or contact us at info at seagullfamilyfoundation.org. One of the other things I want to talk about is, well, the the sector-wide endemic problem of being allergic to overheads. I even hate that word overheads, but there's definitely, I think, certainly among established foundations, you know, people understand that funding beyond direct grant making or making sure that you're including core costs in your support, funding, capacity strengthening, building. I know there's a whole like school of thought on what terminology is best there. But something that really sticks out for me about Freedom Fund's model and from working on the site is how much you really do invest in things beyond, including and beyond the direct grant from the program advisors who are local to the hotspots you work in and they speak the language and they translate the reports back and you have technical advisors, you facilitate communities of practice so people get the benefit of the portfolio. There's just so much more work you do in addition to giving a grant. And I think that's really interesting. And I'm wondering if you can speak about that. A, why that's important to you, why that's effective. And for other funders who may not be having as comprehensive a hotspot strategy as you do, but what kind of mindset should they be taking from that approach that you think are applicable to other frontline contexts? So you may regret asking about overhead because uh, I have fairly strong views on it Mm -hmm. too. And I've struggled with this a lot because I wonder why funders, many funders in particular, so focus on overhead because as a recipient of funding, you know, it often implies a lack of trust. It Mm -hmm. implies you can't run your organization efficiently and effectively, so we will impose some arbitrary mechanism. But I know that most funders act from a place of good faith. And so, but of course, what happens is, I compare here the nonprofit world with the business world. Mm -hmm. In the business world, no one looks at overheads other than to work out if monies are actually being completely wasted, right? But you look at the impact of the organization, which is usually financial returns to shareholders. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to compare that between organizations. So from a business sense, you can look at impact, you can look at financial returns, and you compare an organization against another. Nonprofit world, very difficult to compare organizations. First Mm -hmm. of all, because impact can often be very difficult to measure, right? How do you measure change? How do you measure the effectiveness of the the outcomes that you're seeking to produce? And, you know, even if you're working, just take two examples, working in a city on addressing poverty, they might have completely different approaches. So how do you even compare the impact of those two organizations? But you have donors who are desperate to compare something, mm-hmm. right? So they seize on the one thing that you can measure, which is your inputs, not your outcomes, but they look at your how much you're spending on your finance team and how much you're spending on HR and fundraising. But it's such a false measure 
Right? At the Freedom Fund, we have a robust finance team because we are granting to 150 frontline organisations and we want to make sure that our donor money is spent responsibly and thoughtfully. And so by investing in our finance systems, we are a much better implementer of other people's funding. Mm-hmm. Right? Costs money. Right? I have a hugely productive team here at the Freedom Fund. We invest in their learning and development. We have good HR resources. Produces outsized impact. Mm-hmm. But of course, the upfront cost manifests itself in HR costs. So what I would say to anyone looking at the Freedom Fund is look at our impact. Don't look at our inputs, right? Mm-hmm. As you would do with any well-performing business. And so we're trying to apply that philosophy too to the organisations we support. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we are evangelists around the idea of the power of frontline organisations so that we can support them to operate more effectively and impactfully, not telling them, you know, they're going to do this program versus this program versus this program and then starving them for the resources they need to develop their thinking and develop mm-hmm. their teams. Right? If you believe in the power of frontline organisations, it's very easy to believe in supporting the organisation as a whole and capturing that impact, mm-hmm. uh, which is what we try and do and try and persuade others they should be doing as well. Mm-hmm. I love that, the input-output distinction. I think that's interesting and powerful. And when you look at yourself as a donor organization, it can be a very powerful mirror. Well, I think, you know, if donors look at yeah. their, their inputs and compare, I yeah. mean, any donor, I hadn't thought of this before, but you've just given me that idea, you know, any donor that kind of focuses overly on kind of inputs mm-hmm. on, on overheads should be comparing their overheads with other donor organizations. Mm-hmm. And of course, the immediate response is, well, we can't compare because we're not, you know, it's, yeah. it's apples and oranges, mm-hmm. right? And there basically is your answer. Mm-hmm. I think there's also an interesting tension around the amount of, that you invest in organizations from technical assistance or capacity strengthening, all of those different kinds of things to help them thrive with other donor relationships. I always find that interesting, which is the tension between helping them play the game that is the global philanthropic marketplace, whilst also not overly imposing too many traditional Western global North practices without questioning them in the first place. I think it's always a dance that a funder has to do. I think the Freedom Fund does it quite well. Do you ever feel that tension? I feel it all the time. And it's not a blank check when I kind of say don't overly focus on overheads. One of the tools we have on the website is an organizational capacity assessment tool. Mm -hmm. We go in and work with organizations to understand how they are on their governance, on their finance. But I think it's a much more honest understanding of what kind of support and what you want an organization to do rather than just an arbitrary measure of like, don't spend more than 10% on overheads. Mm -hmm. And so we use this tool with partners to work out how we can best support them, but also to understand what they're doing on all of this. So it's shying away and all donors would be saying, you know, they want to understand the impact of their dollars and they want to understand how they can have the greatest impact. Well, just by looking at overhead, you're not doing that. What you should be doing is digging deeper mm-hmm. to understand what are you worried about, what are you trying to address, and how can you support your partner having mm-hmm. the greatest possible impact. Mm-hmm. And what's that like for you as a pooled fund? Because you're both fundraising and grant making at Freedom Fund. And obviously in that balance, you can only trust or give the kind of support you want to give to your partners if that's also matching the quality of support that you're getting from your own donors. Otherwise, there can be a difficult thing to manage there. What is that like for you in terms of making sure that the money flowing into you is matching the values that you want to grant make it out with? We've been reasonably fortunate in that our founders from the beginning have largely provided us with unrestricted funding. Mm -hmm. And I think that set a kind of 
not a bar, but it's encouraged others to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the figures to hand, but I suspect about at least 60 to 70% of our funding currently is unrestricted. Wow. Assisted by a very generous grant from Mackenzie Scott 18 yes. months ago, which comes completely unrestricted mm-hmm. and adopts that philosophy, which is we mm-hmm. trust our partners to understand. Mm-hmm. But I get that that's not always feasible. As I explained, it's not always feasible for us in our grant making mm-hmm. to give unrestricted funding. So the issue there is, as I highlighted earlier, well, then do it as thoughtfully and responsibly as possible if you are going to impose restrictions, mm-hmm. because I think it's entirely understandable. I mean, you know, I also don't want to become a, a recipient of grant funding that is overly entitled. Right? People have funds. They are allowed to have a say over how they want to disperse it. Mm-hmm. I just think that if you are trying to have the greatest impact with your funds, then look at it through those lenses. Mm-hmm. And it can be that there are other ways that you can restrict your grants, but still ensure that those you're working with have the greatest possible impact. So that's mm-hmm. the plea for donors. Mm-hmm. Lean into the trust. And I like that middle ground because there is often an unrestricted, restricted binary of it's one or the other, one is terrible, one is great. And the reality is that for sometimes it is somewhere in the middle and there is a flexible middle ground of restricted but flexible or co-created in the restriction in the first place in order to manage all of the other accountabilities. And I think that's also really important to draw out, again, to get specific and not just to rest at the level of everything being unrestricted and that's the only guidance donors get because that can fall quite flat at the same time as obviously championing that approach. So you are writing a book and it's on nonprofit leadership, right? It comes out next year, 2024. Can you tell us about it? Sure. So I was fortunate enough to get a sabbatical last year Mm -hmm. and I was keen to write about nonprofit leadership because as you can probably tell from this podcast, it's something I think about quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And Interestingly, there aren't a lot of books out there on nonprofit leadership from a kind of practitioner's perspective mm. that are practically focused. There's quite a lot of theoretical stuff out there and consultant stuff, but to my mind, there's a big gap in the market. I don't know if I can fill that gap, but so I'm writing a book called How to Lead Non, or well, the working title is How to Lead Nonprofits Turning Purpose into Impact to Change the World. Mm. And the theme behind the book is, you know, there are kind of foundational components to leading nonprofits around purpose, people, and partners. So purpose being your mission, your impact, your strategy, people being internal, if you're focused internally on the CEO, Mm -hmm. the team and culture, DEI and your board, and then partners focusing externally, first and foremost on the people in the communities you serve, Mm -hmm. which have to be at the centre of everything you do, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also on your funders who Mm -hmm. are key partners and also on peers, networks, collaboration, because as you can see, I'm a big believer in kind of mobilising others to your core. So, mm-hmm. so that's the book coming out towards the middle of next year, just about finished the manuscript. We'll be sending it in in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And hopefully when it comes out, it will be of use to CEOs, aspiring CEOs, people leading teams. But, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the hope. I love that. Congratulations. Thank you. To bring it back to the front lines, do you think, because this is nonprofit leadership, does that include frontline leadership? Do you differentiate between those in any way? I don't differentiate. I think mm-hmm. leading an organization, leading a nonprofit, I lean into a lot the experiences that we've learned through yeah. working with frontline leaders. I have a number of them quoted in the book mm-hmm. because I think there's lots to learn from those who work very closely with the communities they serve. Yeah. So, I mean, leadership is leadership. It's mm-hmm. just that it then manifests itself in different ways in different contexts. But Mm -hmm. you still need to build a culture in your team. You still need to identify what you're trying to do and how best to achieve it. You still need to raise funds. So those are common issues for most leaders. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. I think that also a lot of tie over, crossover with the for-profit world as well. Is, is there any differences that are interesting to highlight at this point between those two worlds? I actually use the distinction often. I think you ask business leaders how to lead nonprofits better and they'll invariably say <laughs> lead them more like businesses, yeah. which I think is completely wrong. I think for a start, nonprofit leaders have one huge advantage over business leaders in that purpose is at the core of what we do. Changing the world for the better, however we do it, is at the heart of what we do. And mm-hmm. if you can put that at the centre of everything you do, it's empowering for staff, it gives you a sense of direction, It's so interesting watching business leaders trying to find their purpose. Mm -hmm. Their first purpose is making financial returns. That's what they're being judged against. So then they look for secondary purposes. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that helps you with, if you use it well, helps you with building cultures and teams and all the rest of it. But there are also challenges. Nonprofits' power is often a lot more diffuse. Mm. You know, I watch for business leaders who operate in a much more hierarchical often. Mm -hmm environment and can issue top-down orders and well if i try that here staff will just laugh at me so you know (laughs) it's about how do you bring people along with you rather than just being direct but in the end it's a much more powerful form of leadership as well yeah so i lean into that quite a bit as well i love that i can't wait to read it so okay we're going to start to wrap up before we go i want to ask you some very serious questions that have nothing to do with frontline impact or with leadership for or nonprofit. Um, and we ask these to all our guests with really in the ethos that we're all fundamentally just human beings working within this system, within this industry, whether you're a leader, whether you identify as something else, but getting back to that core human connection is really important for sustainable impact. So you ready? Here we go. Question number one, how do you take your coffee? I have black coffee in the morning and then flat whites after that. Mm. Excellent. I also have heard that you like musicals, and I do too, so I'm wondering what is your favourite musical? I don't know where you would have heard that from, <laughs> um, but actually one of my favourite films is Strictly Ballroom, so I don't know if you know ah, Strictly Ballroom, yes. so yeah. Paris Luma, an Australian director who's uh-huh. just done Elvis, so I'm not sure if that qualifies as a musical, it's all about music. Oh yeah. And, and also Romeo and Juliet, his second movie is mm. also a brilliant movie, so there you go. Excellent. Maybe I do. <laughs> there you go. I also know from LinkedIn that you've recently been on an epic wedding tour and that you've married your wife several times this year, which is amazing. Congratulations. I'm wondering what your favorite celebration has been. Yeah, so I got married in January. We got married in January in a registry office, but we have families in Scotland and Australia and friends all around the world. So we had a celebration in Perth and a celebration in London. There is no favourite. It's like favourite children, right? Yeah, but, I know. Um, but, London, but London brought together all of our friends, whereas mm. Australia was predominantly my family and friends. So I think that was the more joyful mm-hmm. celebration for both of us. That's wonderful. Congratulations again. And what was the last show that you binged, if you binge? Yeah, this is... Um, this is <laughs> no shame. Uh, no, there's no shame. <laughs> it's just it's not particularly exciting. It was The Diplomat. Oh, um, yeah. I really enjoyed The Diplomat. Yeah, and, You know, I kind of worked in international affairs and uh-huh. worked for government. So it was a great series, you know, and it wasn't yeah. too, it was stretching the truth a bit, but it wasn't beyond the realms of credibility. Yeah, completely so, agree. I really liked it as well. That was on Netflix. So we spoke about your book and I just want to ask you about the process of writing it. What has been the best thing and also the hardest part of that process? Yeah, the hardest thing is writing it. Yeah, <laughs> fair <laughs> but, enough. <laughs> But but yeah. the best thing is writing it too. I mean, uh-huh. I, I was very privileged to have just over three months off over summer and spent a chunk of it at friends' places, at my partner's place in France. And the complete 
privilege of, of having the time and the space to write and think about things I really care about made what is a really hard process much easier. I, I couldn't have written a book without that concentrated time. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah, good answer. Very last question. What is your favorite form of potato? So I am Australian, but I also have a Belgian passport. So, mm. and you know, Belgians are famous for their frites, their fries. Ooh. They're famous because they double fry their fries, often in goose or duck fat. So duck fat fried um, frites (laughs) would be my answer. Uh, I love that. All right. And okay, this is actually the very last question I lied, which is just to zoom out. And thank you for that. Thank you for humoring me with that. I think that's great. To get back to funding Frontline Impact and to wrap this up, because now listeners, anyone in the world, donors, nonprofit professionals, you can go to fundingfrontlineimpact.org and use the resource. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. And Nick, I'm wondering, what is one key thing that you want listeners and people to take away from this conversation about that resource? What I want you to take away is if you're really serious about shifting power to vulnerable, marginalized communities, you have to invest in frontline organizations. And... That can be challenging on occasion, but we just want to help you do that. And this resource will help you do that as effectively as possible for the greatest possible impact. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Nick. Thank you, Rachel. That's all we've got for today. A huge thank you to Nick for his time. I really enjoyed that conversation. I also just want to send another shout out to Aaron Phelps and the Wider Freedom Fund team for their partnership over the past year. It's been an amazing project to work on. So please do visit the resource. It's fundingfrontlineimpact.org and let us know what you think. More episodes are coming shortly. And in the meantime, you know where to find us. Twitter at IG underscore advisors, our website impactandgrowth.com or our LinkedIn. We're quite active there these days. And you can always shoot me an email, rachel at ig-advisors.com. Finally, of course, another thank you to our official season four sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation for making this possible and to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget, you can use the code WHATDONORSWANT for 50% off an Alliance subscription. All one word. Thanks again for listening. See you soon. This podcast was produced by myself, Rachel Stephenson-Chef, Esther Cavour, and the team at Scrubcast. Shout out to Dave and Tim. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us do what we do. Thanks so much.